Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm lovely, thank you. Okay, well, I'm feeling lovely. I don't think anybody's ever described me as lovely, but oh, nevertheless. I think you're lo- I think you're loverly. <laughs> like from my fair lady. Oh, great. I great love reference. that song. I love that. I, and who doesn't love Audrey Hepburn? Crazy sad people because she's marvelous. And, and by the way, uh, uh, you uh, in regards to that song, uh, uh, listeners and, and Nia, you ought to give the Roseanne Cash version of that song a listen. She does oh. it. She does an excellent job with it. Um, and in uh, and, and, and disclosing a little personal information, when my daughter Mackenzie uh, uh, was a baby, and I was trying to get her to sleep, and I would sing her songs, that would be one of the songs that I would sing. Oh. And I and and I did it uh, uh, um, uh, uh, in the version that Roseanne Cash uh, uh, did. Uh, so if you get a chance, uh, give it a listen. Um, there is your uh, musical re- recommendation for today's podcast episode. Yes. Oh, the softer side of Augie. I, I, it's fun for me to picture you standing around in the middle of the night trying to sing a baby to sleep. <laughs> While thinking to yourself, it's okay. I only have 400 more papers to grade. It's all right, sweetheart. You just stay awake as long as you want. Um, of course, of course, now my daughter's of the age to where um, uh, uh, she has concluded um, that my voice is uh, good for uh, putting people of all ages to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's going to come in handy, though, when she's a teenager and she's like a sloth and she sleeps 17 hours a day or whatever it is. That <laughs> sleep. You can just talk to her for a few minutes and she'll fall asleep. Yes. But you don't put me to sleep. And today you have a new commission for us. Ah, the infamous tower commission okay tower commission john tower was he a congressman or a he was a senator from the state of texas yes but um okay can i can i tell you what i think the precipitating event was (laughs) i think the precipitating event was Ronald Reagan standing on this on the street with those three walnut things with the P underneath. And you know how they get passersby to stop and be like, okay, put down your $10. And then if you, if you can tell me which one the P is under, then I will give you $10, but you never win. Cause hello, they know how to work that game. Yes. That's pretty much what that event feels like. Cause I know that Iran was involved and I know that there was the Sandinistas were involved and there were guns and there was money and there was spying, but it all feels like one of those shell games. Am I like, no, is that, that image? No, that, right? it, 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 <laughs> it was one big shell game um, and Nia, uh, uh, officially the precipitating event uh, was the infamous Iran-Contra scandal during the uh, Ronald Reagan presidency. Um, um, so basically, listeners, 
Iran-Contra, okay, was where the United States did an arms deal with the Iranian government, okay? And this was the Iranian government after the Iranian hostage crisis, okay, of the late 1970s. Right. right? I was going to say, these were the same people who had just taken Americans at the American embassy hostage for 444 days. That's right. Um, so we're so we were talking about you know five six years later okay um uh the uh u.s government okay this gets this gets very convoluted so listeners please bear with me okay so after the iranian hostage crisis the united states um was struggling to have good working relations with many countries in the Middle East, okay? And um, uh, in Lebanon, um, uh, Hezbollah, okay? Um, which uh, is a group that was backed by the Iranians were holding seven additional Americans hostage. Okay, these were diplomats, these were private contractors. Um, and uh, Iran at that time was in uh, a war with the Iraqis, and the Iranians needed weapons. So, the deal that got proposed was that if the United States sold weapons to the Iranians, the Iranians would promise to put pressure on Hezbollah to release these hostages. Even though it we has had been, declared as national policy that we do not negotiate with terrorists. Yes. So we that are was sort the, of indirectly negotiating with terrorists at this point. So the Reagan administration was between a rock and a hard spot, right? On one hand, we have this official policy that Nia just mentioned. The US government never negotiates with terrorists. On the other hand, the press, and not for nothing, certain Democratic members of Congress was putting, were putting pressure on the Reagan administration to bring these seven hostages home. So, <clears throat> Within the Reagan administration, there were parts of his National Security Council that were advocating making this arms deal. Now, the Secretary of Defense, um, who was Caspar Weinberger, and the Secretary of State, George Soltz, okay, advised against making the deal. But they were. Um, uh, uh, overridden by President Reagan. Because for Reagan, he wanted the hostages home, right? He wanted the hostages home. Now, also within the National Security Council were staffers who thought, well, the money we would make on the arms deal, we could allocate some of that money, 
And by the way, it was a $30 million arms deal. So we're not Which talking- Which in 1980s of, money was actual money. Yeah, it was serious. In the, era of, in the era of trillions of dollars spent on things, that doesn't seem like a lot of money. But we hadn't yet had trillion dollar packages the way we have in the, in the 2000s going forward. So in the 80s, when you say $30 million, you're talking about a lot of money. It was a lot of money. And these National Security Council staffers wanted to uh, reallocate some of that money. Now, first of all, the arms deal was going to have to be black. And we discussed this in previous podcast episodes. A black budget item, okay, is not made public. It's typically not even shared with members of Congress. So they were going to reallocate right. some of that money to the Sandinistas fighting in Nicaragua. And on a budget, that looks like a number, and then next to it, a blank, where it says, we are not going to tell you what this number buys. Yes, right. But they tell you the number, because in yes. the budget, you have to tell people the numbers. Even Congress gets yes. to know the amounts, but yes. they don't, but, but there'll be sort of an insert our secretive thing here. And the Sandinistas, okay, were fighting the communist regime in Nicaragua. And the Sandinistas um, uh, historically had uh, bankrolled their opposition to the communist regime in Nicaragua by selling drugs. And they weren't exactly the nicest people in the world. Even though the Reagan administration, even though President Reagan Refer, uh, uh, made reference to them um, uh, as the equivalent of the founding fathers in the United States. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to beg to differ with Ronald Reagan on that. The Sandinistas were not, you know how they talk about the lesser of two evils? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's kind of what you're talking about here. But I mean, okay, the Sandinistas were not were not the good guys. They were just in that instance. And also, uh, listeners, it, the thought of communism in taking root in um, nations within our hemisphere was hugely terrifying to a lot of the Cold War um yeah, I mean, um, folks who had been involved in all that. And Reagan came through the Cold War era. Like, he had Cold War thinking, which was, you cannot let the communists get a foothold in your hemisphere. Cuba's bad enough, but at least it's an island, right? Like, at least it's a little island, off, you know, and it's close enough to Florida, we can keep an eye on it. But if exactly, you start going yeah. with Central America, then if, uh, if the other countries fall, then communism is right on our doorstep. And what are we going to do about that? Yeah, because as we've discussed in previous podcast episodes, um, whether when we had uh, uh, Dr. Judy Twig uh, as a guest or Dr. Bill Newman as a guest, okay, um, you know, in the Cold War, okay, the United States, even the Soviet Union, basically viewed nations around the world as either they were with us or against us, right? Right, and proxies and, for yeah, democracy they, they, or communism. Communism, that's right. 
So, and the problem for Reagan is in the midterm elections in 1982, the Democrats regained control of both houses of Senate. And they passed, okay, uh, an amendment for a defense spending bill. And it's referred to by the name of the, 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 the member of Congress, the Boland Amendment that explicitly prohibited, okay, <laughs> the United States federal government assisting, okay, the Sandinistas, okay? So the Reagan administration had, if you will, another limitation here, okay? They were told in law that they could not back, okay, uh, or not, not the Sandinistas, okay? The Sandinistas were the communists, okay? The Contras were Sorry, the- Sorry, the Contras. Okay, uh, yeah. So I'm gonna Sorry. correct myself here, guys. You, you almost need a scorecard here for all the players, right? right. The Sandinistas okay. were the communists. The, the communists were the and communists. And the Contras. Were the, uh, the, 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 the quote unquote pro-democracy capitalists, right? Again. Okay, they weren't good people. Right, okay? bunch of drug dealers and yes, right. Okay, they they didn't want communism, but not for good reasons in the sense of they wanted democracy. So much as under communism, they probably would not have been able to continue doing what they had been doing, doing okay. and making that kind of money because that's not how communism works. So their motivations were incredibly selfish. It wasn't like yes, right. It wasn't yeah. like it was warm and fuzzy. Yeah. Oh, we want, we're pro-democracy. We want to be like America. It was more like, eh, we don't really want the communists because they're going to step on a lot of what we're trying to do. So Reagan okay, instructs his national security advisor, Bob McFarland, to find a way to assist the drug dealing Contras. Okay. So Reagan, okay, and we've discussed this in previous podcast episodes, Reagan was hands-off in regards to details. Right. He was a big picture president. I want to achieve X, and I'm going to go ahead and let my staff in the White House figure out how to do it. And he wasn't necessarily concerned about the details, okay? I mean, you know, Reagan was very clear, okay, here are the goals. I've decided them as president. Now you guys need to figure out how to do it. And Bob McFarlane as National Security Advisor and then the National Security Council, okay, came up with a rather ingenious way to achieve both of these policy goals, okay? Get those hostages home from Lebanon, while also funding the Contras in the civil war going on in Nicaragua. The problem is, okay, the arms deal to bring the hostages home, okay, was negotiating with quote unquote terrorists, okay? Right. Moreover, it was an well, arms deal with, yeah. a, with a country, okay, that a mere five, six years previous 
held a whole bunch of Americans hostage, right? Right. Our relationship with Iran has been rocky since we installed the Shah over the wishes of the people. Yes. Because okay. we liked the Shah and he was pro-America. And then the the youth in Iran had a revolution and they were like, you know what? You got to go, bozo. And you and your American pals. Like that's that's where you get the hostage crisis and all of that stuff is is in direct response to the Americans forcing a person on them that they did not want to be the head of their government. So uh, then, one could argue that we we started it. Um, oh, sure. You know. Sure. I mean, and again, okay, the Middle East has been a proxy, okay, for world superpowers, okay, oh. for centuries, right? right? Not decades, centuries. Right. And oil has just made it worse. Yes. And then in our own hemisphere, okay, you have the United States Congress telling the executive branch it can't do X, okay? And the Reagan administration- <laughs> Which, Like any toddler, oh, yes, I can. <laughs> right? I mean, again, we've discussed this in previous podcast episodes. If there, is, if there is a common pathology among modern presidents, okay, it is this. In foreign affairs, the United States Congress can't tell the president as commander in chief what to do, right? And Reagan was no different, okay? Reagan also think in terms of Reagan, uh, what I think is fascinating about that is that he had two very disparate thoughts in his held in his head at the same time, which was he was very much anti-drug, right? He had, a, he had the war on drugs, just say no, all of that stuff. Nancy Reagan took it up as part of her legacy, but also part of his legacy. So he would have not liked what the Contras were doing. But as previously noted, he despised communism. Yeah, he referred to the Soviet Union as the evil empire in a speech to ministers. Right. To ministers. Right. And, and you know, <laughs> Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, right? Like he, he very much was known as anti-communist. So for him, I'm assuming that looking at a bunch of drug dealers, but who are not communist, and then the communists, he chose to go with the one side versus the other. Yes. But, and in order to get the money to do that, and to get the hostages back, it's like, great, I can do all of these things, and this is all going to work out wonderfully, And but that's not really what happened, is it? No. Um, in 1986, uh, a newspaper in Lebanon uh, report, reported the arms deal between the U.S. and the Iranians. Oh, I didn't realize the Lebanese broke the story. Yes. Um, Good for them. Reagan initially denied... Um, that he negotiated with the Iranians or Hezbollah, okay? But he eventually retracted the statement. But then, okay, Pandora's box had been opened, right? Congress, the American media, they all wanted to know what was going on. So at first, Reagan thought, well, if I do an internal investigation, um, this will satisfy um, the, you know, jackals 
that are hovering around, <laughs> okay, the carcass, right? Right. So he first had his attorney general do an investigation, okay? Was that Meese? Yes, Edwin Meese. And Meese actually found and reported that the National Security Council, okay, reallocated 18 out of the $30 million that the U.S. made on the arms deal to the Contras, okay? Okay. At that point, okay, Congress was like, we need an independent investigation. So Reagan creates the Tower Commission, okay? The Tower Commission. The Tower Commission basically was comprised of three people, okay? John Tower, a former senator from Texas, former Secretary of State, uh, Ed Muskie, okay, he was a Democrat, and then former National Security Advisor, uh, Brent uh, uh, Scowcroft, okay, uh, who uh, Bill Newman and I both referred to as an exemplar of government service in a previous podcast episode, okay, all right? Right. Um, but can I just say something about the size of this commission? Yes. I'm not trying to be cynical. <laughs> but if you put three people on a commission, you're not looking for an in-depth, find the truth, involved, yes. uh, you know, no. go to the ends of the earth. This is not like some of the commissions where there have been significantly larger numbers of resources thrown at the commission in order to get to the bottom of this. This sounds a little to me in my cynical heart that maybe they didn't really want this commission to find a whole lot of information slash money slash stuff. You are correct, Nia. Um, not only did it have a very limited staff, it also had a very limited charge uh, from President Reagan. Um, he asked the Tower Commission to examine the proper role of the National Security Council staff in conducting national security operations. That was it. That was it. <laughs> so in fact, their scope did not include the money. It didn't include what the money went for. Or none of that, of that. So how it got there, where it went, what happened. None of that was part of their scope. Their scope was simply, did this national security advisor do and, what and, they were supposed to do? Yes. And even though Reagan said publicly he wanted all the facts to come out, the commission, okay, <laughs> Um, uh, had no subpoena power, limited resources. They were given um, uh, three months to do their work. <laughs> so it was sort of a show commission. It was a show commission, okay? Of all the commissions we are going to talk about in our series about government commissions, um, this is the one 
that I would point to as sane, okay, um, undercuts any kind of faith or legitimacy the public might have in government commissions. Which is unfortunate because all three of the members of this commission were yes. upstanding yes. people yes. who had served in government for a long period of time and you know, had, like had by and large sterling that, reputations, etc. Yes. Like one of the things that you mentioned about the Warren Commission was that putting putting Justice Warren in charge of that commission lent weight to the idea of the commission's work. Here is the Chief Justice. It's an important, serious thing. Right, but that doesn't always carry the day because both all three of these men were important, serious people, but because they were also not given any sort of support, it sounds like you, you can ask questions, but you can't make people answer. But that's yeah. not a so if people get in there and they say, I don't want to answer, there's nothing you can do about it. or if they decide not to come to your commission. There's nothing you can do about it. That that really, I would think, would hobble and inhibit their work. Yeah, and 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 the Tower Commission also got undercut by the fact that in early 1987, the United States Congress then created a select committee who did their own investigation, and in the process, okay, in issuing subpoenas of the actors involved for some of them granted them immunity from prosecution if they testified. And I want you guys to remember that because this is going to be part of the, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, the, the aftermath, if you will, right? Well, and remember that the investigations from Congress do have subpoena power. Yes, they do. Okay. And there's nothing that can remove that or inhibit but that. If you have been called via subpoena to testify in front of Congress, and you're afraid that you're going to say something under oath that could be then used against you in a criminal prosecution, you can have your attorney negotiate with the Congress so that you receive immunity. Right. Okay. So the Tower Commission does its work, but at the same time, Congress is also doing its investigation, right? And by the way, the Tower Commission, notwithstanding its limited scope, resources, and basic inability to force anybody to testify, actually did get testimony from 86 witnesses they also did something that was extremely important for not only the congressional investigation, but then the subsequent independent counsel uh, investigation uh, from, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, I want to say Kenneth. It's not Kenneth. Walsh. Walsh, yeah. Yeah, it's Kenneth Walsh, I think. Okay. But the Tower Commission did go ahead. Lawrence and, Walsh. Yeah, Lawrence Walsh. Um, the, the Tower Commission did issue a report where they held Reagan accountable for a quote, lax managerial style and aloofness from policy detail. <laughs> I like that aloofness from policy detail. That's a nice way of saying 
He didn't care how it got done and he didn't want to be told. Don't tell me how you're doing it, just do it. I don't want to be looped in on the details. And one, th there's two ways that one could think about that, I think. There's this idea of, I don't want to know because I don't want to be held accountable, which I don't think was the case. I think in Reagan's case, it was, I don't want to know because I don't care. I don't care how it gets done. I want it to get done. As you were saying earlier, a 50,000 foot view rather than a 10 foot view, right? I want this thing to happen, go out and make it happen. And his yeah, uh, 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 is, uh, do uh, whatever uh, you need to do to make it happen. Of presidents of roughly the last 50 to 60 years, Nia, um, you know, the one president that you and anybody could safely say was not a policy wonk was Ronald Reagan. Right. He was big picture, right? You know, Jimmy Carter was a policy wonk, okay? Bush 41, okay? Oh. Had been a career bureaucrat most of his life, right? Clinton dug into the weeds for fun. Yeah, he, you know, Bill Clinton loved that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, you know, one of the criticisms of Clinton was, okay, he would have the White House staff up all night talking about policy, right? Okay. Um, now you could argue, as many have, Bush forty three uh, was more of a CEO, big picture type. Okay, but I mean. Barack Obama, very comfortable with policy details, right? Right. Uh, uh, Donald Trump, okay, um, would inadvertently get involved in policy <laughs> details because he wanted things done like immediately, right? So he would have to endure policy details because at the bottom, you know, the bottom line at the end of the meeting, Donald Trump would say, and it's going to get done tomorrow, right? Okay, okay. But Ronald Reagan was, you know, hey, guys, I don't care how you get it done, okay? I want it done, right? I want it done. Right. I was, you know? Well, and part of that, um, forgive me, because I have f mixed memories of Ronald Reagan, right? Parts of me are very fond of Ronald Reagan. The other parts of me are like, oh, a criminal. One of the most criminal of all the presidents that never went to prison because of all the criminal stuff that happened on his watch. Not necessarily by him, but I think his administration had some had either the highest number of criminal investigations or one of the highest numbers. Um, and this was just one of many scandals. But, but Ronald Reagan treated the presidency, I think, as a connection to the people, the government connecting to the people. He was really good at giving speeches and getting people interested in government and what government was doing and that kind of thing. And I think that comes from his acting, his acting career. And it also comes from being the president of SAG. I mean, he was, he had, and governor of California, he had done these things before in his, in his career that were PR related sort of, um, I mean, one could argue that it's Reagan who builds back interest in the government after Nixon, not Carter, right? One could argue that that comes from Reagan. It comes from his sort of, 
excitement and hope and and communication style um, that Jimmy Carter was sort of a stopgap president and then you get a president that really gets people back to yeah, Ronald Reagan in government Amer- you know, and hoping in government and that kind of thing you know it's it, it's you know uh, it's morning in America right. right it's a brand new day right um, instead of focusing on you know uh, all the problems the country has faced you know, let's think about all the opportunities. Right. And, you, and you are correct, right? Ronald Reagan is kind of sort of the pole star for Republicans in this country. Um, but for many Democrats, um, it was uh, a poorly criminally run presidential <laughs> administration. Um, uh, With a really nice CEO. I think I even mean, Democrats will say that Reagan was a nice CEO. Oh, hey, I mean, there were many. And he seemed like a good fella. I mean, many Democratic uh, uh, members of Congress uh, liked Ronald Reagan personally. I mean, I, 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 I still like to regale my students with, with how the Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, okay, old school, New Deal Democrat, okay, from Massachusetts, um, uh, who... Uh, believed in big government, right? Whereas Ronald Reagan was just like, no, we're going to shrink the size of the government, okay? But Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, okay, um, uh, uh, with some regularity, uh, met at the White House um, and, and, and shared drinks and had conversations, and they liked each other personally, okay? But in regards to policy, okay, uh, uh, they were miles apart, miles apart, right? But, you know, the danger of that kind of managerial style was on display in Iran-Contra. Um, and the Tower Commission called out Reagan for it, right? right. Called out Reagan for it. Um, and- uh, Do you think what, that it's, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, it seems to me that the Tower Commission's report also suffered from competing with wall-to-wall television coverage of the congressional hearings, because a lot of those figures went in and testified before Congress. I I don't recall that Reagan did, although I think he probably testified for the commission. But I don't remember him testifying before Congress. But a lot of the other people involved did testify before Congress. And I say that because I remember watching it on television. I remember watching sort of Oliver North with all of his medals and his uniform and sitting very upright and, you know, and giving testimony. That's a, I mean, I hate to say that they scooped the commission. But they kind of did because we are a visual nation in a lot of ways, and they gave us a lot of visual to look at during the Iran Contra hearings. That maybe the tower, maybe the Tower Commission didn't get quite so much airplay. Yeah, Reagan did give a deposition for Independent Counsel uh, Welsh's uh, investigation. Okay. Um, uh, Various other figures uh, in the scandal did testify in front of Congress. Uh, Bob McFarland did. You mentioned Oliver North. Um, 
uh, he most famously did. Uh, he te testified in his uniform with all of his ribbons. Okay. Um, uh, 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 John Poindexter, um, uh, uh, also uh, who ran the National Security uh, Council, um, uh, he testified. Um, and, uh, and a number of them were charged, indicted, and convicted, though many of them had their convictions overturned. Uh, McFarland um, was sentenced uh, for two years of probation and $20,000 in fines. Oliver North was charged with 12 counts of conspiracy and perjury. Um, he was convicted, but later his um, conviction was overturned on appeal because the federal court found that Congress had given him and a number of other figures in Iran-Contra uh, transactional immunity, uh, meaning that they got immunity because they were willing to turn over relevant information and documents, et cetera. So even if they were not completely truthful, unfortunately, Congress was so excited and so impatient to get their testimony um, that they gave them immunity. And therefore, they could not be prosecuted. So North got off. Poindexter eventually um, uh, uh, had his uh, convictions overturned. Um, only one person actually served jail time, a private contractor, okay, um, <laughs> was the only one who got jail time. Really, okay? in that entire thing? Of that entire thing. And we're talking about dozens of people who were involved in this. I mean, and that's one of the truly stunning things about all of this, okay? These folks thought that they could go ahead and do this covertly without ever getting caught. There were so many moving parts, okay? From, you know, selling the weapons to the Iranians, to negotiating with Hezbollah, then channeling part of the uh, revenue from the arms deal to the Contras and hoping that nobody in the Contras would go ahead and, you know, leave the fact right. yeah, that the U.S. government was bankrolling their civil war against the Sandinistas. Well, and then also they didn't use all the money for that. So then there was money floating around that people were like, where'd this money come from? Oh, we don't know. We just found it in our pockets. Here, here's $12 million. That's a lot of money to not explain where you got it, right? Like it, it's not even so much the whole, but it's the extra that would make people say, wait a minute, where'd this $12 million come from? Oh, we sold some stuff. What, like you had a yard sale? Sale, right. You know, and and, that's, and... and that's why, by the way, independent counsel Walsh really went after Secretary of Defense Weinberger and Secretary of State Schultz because they maintained all along that they advised against the arms deal, 
okay? And we're completely unaware that part of the proceeds of the arms deal went to the Contras, okay? And when Bush 41 became president, he went ahead and gave a pardon to Weinberger for any future prosecution, which again, you know, you want to talk about, you know, if there's smoke, there's got to be fire. Why are you going to go ahead and give somebody a pardon, okay, if they didn't do anything wrong, okay? And so I put to you that that's because President Bush had been head of the CIA. Well, and, and he understood where good. you get where you get clandestine money and how much clandestine money flows from one place to another without anybody knowing exactly where it came from or where it went. Yeah. And are you going to go ahead and prosecute people who went ahead and took this money where they didn't know where the money came from and then used it for other operational imperatives? <laughs> right? right. OK, if that was going to be the case. There's a whole bunch of staffers in the CIA from the top way down to the bottom operationally, okay, who could get indicted for violating law, people's civil rights, et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, you want to talk about opening up a, a, a can of worms, okay? <laughs> okay, good Lord, right? I mean, you're talking about prosecuting multiple, you know, uh, 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 administration staffers and fighting the Cold War, okay? Right. I mean, you know, not to be indelicate about this, but in fighting the Cold War, okay, the United States government did some really bad stuff with some oh. really bad people. Right. Right. Okay. Um, you know, you know, and those, justified it from the point of view of we're fighting communism. Least, right. At least these aren't communists. That's right. They may be I mean, drug dealing jerk faces, but they're not communists. That's right. Okay. And so we will take them over. Right. We look at it now from the modern lens of the failure of communism to really take hold, except in China. Um, well, and one could argue Cuba, but Cuba's a, a bit on the small side to be considered a major power in communism. But but other than China, like it's pretty much failed in Russia. Now what you have is an authoritarian government, not a communist government. So we modernly looking at it and saying, I don't know what the big deal was. Well, the big deal was that at the time, the Soviet Union was still the Soviet Union. Like it, it was still holding together as a communist force had, in the world. And it had as a stated aim the spread of that form of government around the world, right? right? Um, so, you know, the difficulty or dilemma for the United States, okay, and other Western democracies was, are we going to let it? And once they made a decision, no, we're going to stop the spread of communism, then everything was viewed through that lens in regards to U.S. foreign policy. Right. I believe one of my favorite political science professors uses the phrase to to every to a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Yes. <laughs> um, right. Like if if the problem is communism, pull out your hammer and start whacking on it. It doesn't nothing else matters except solving that. Yes. Which is and, how we end up in Vietnam. It's how we end up in all these other countries where we're fighting proxy wars. It's how all of that comes about from the 
from the end of World War II on, right? Is yes. Until this, until sort of the end of the Reagan era, where you now see the dying out of, uh, except as I said, China. But I have a question for you about this particular episode. Sure. Much has been made of the. Um, I don't recall, I don't remember, I'm not entirely certain of the details, answers that Ronald Reagan gave yeah. about the Iran-Contra, not during, but post-Iran-Contra in his second presidency or in his second uh, term. Yeah, um, during, his and second, then, during his second term, he gave a deposition to uh, independent uh, counsel, uh, Lawrence Walsh. Right. And in it, I can't remember the exact number, but it's close to a hundred or a little over a hundred times President Reagan said um, he did not recall. Is that attributed to his early onset Alzheimer's? Yeah, um, initially, and again, guys, you know, we're looking at this from uh, a millennium um, where we have much more knowledge about Alzheimer's okay, and the early signs of it. But in the 1980s, okay, it was not a common diagnosis, particularly of uh, elderly Americans. And we weren't always entirely sure of the early signs that somebody did have Alzheimer's. So when Reagan said that, okay, all those times, I don't recall in his deposition, his opponents, okay, were like, okay, he's covering up the truth. He's stonewalling. Right? Yeah, he's stonewalling, right? Yeah. Now, for most presidential scholars, they truly believe now that that was the clearest sign that Reagan was already suffering from um, uh, symptoms of early onset Alzheimer's. Um, and, you know, after he left office, Okay, um, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Okay, and died relatively quickly. Yeah, relatively. Okay. Yeah, relatively quickly. I mean, let's let's face it, folks. Okay, I mean, and we've talked about this, and and you could say, unfortunately, joked about it, but many former presidents don't live long after they leave office. Okay, right. LBJ did not. Carter is an exception. Yes. Reagan did not. Bush 41 did. Okay. Um, and our and Scott, current presidents have. Yeah. Okay. Thank we, goodness. We, yeah. We've know. been doing a little bit better. But I mean, you know, you know, many of our previous presidents, okay, after their, you know, one term or two terms in office, they didn't live long afterwards. Well, and one could argue that it is an enormously exhausting office to hold. Yes. And if you're already at an advanced age when, age when you take that office. And Reagan was. It cannot be good for your health to continue. But it, what, where it leads me to wonder is, and I know this is pure speculation, but this is what we do at the end of these, um, at these commission reports is speculation. I have to wonder if some of the people in under him knew that he didn't know exactly what was going on or that he wasn't recalling details completely and or they that used they took that a, or to they their took advantage a, right yeah they took advantage of it right to, and to do a thing they wanted to do 
right? They wanted to solve these problems. One, that probably in fairness to them, they wanted to get hostages back because we always want to get hostages back. Nobody ever wants to see Americans held in dangerous situations like that. Um, but also, they, a lot of people in government in certain types of positions feel like the ends justify the means, right? Like, oh, sure. I mean, if we, you know, if we can do this thing and the president doesn't really remember or doesn't really recall or isn't really sure about what we're doing, then that gives him plausible deniability. So let's just go ahead and do it. Well, in in, in moreover, and and again, guys, uh, listeners, I'm not justifying or nor am I saying that Oliver North was correct. But the logic of Oliver North was the United States had promised freedom fighters, fighters of communism around the world, that we would have their backs. Right. And the United States Congress passes the Bolin Amendment saying we can't do X. Okay. Well, we're leaving our brothers, you know, out to dry, okay, in fighting communism, and we have a responsibility, okay, to get their backs, okay? So even though Congress made it very clear that uh, uh, the U.S. federal government would not give material aid to the Contras, okay, one, okay, Constitutionally, they can't tell the president how to conduct foreign policy. And two, okay, we're fighting communism. Right. And our president has given us the broad charge, okay, of supporting the Contras. Okay. Um, You couple that with the fact that, you know, Ronald Reagan just in general had a managerial style of, I don't want to know the details. Okay. Yeah, they took advantage. Okay. Did some of them perhaps know that um, uh, uh, his grasp of, of operational detail, okay, uh, uh, one, he wasn't interested, but two, okay, maybe increasingly uh, he didn't have that capacity? It wouldn't surprise me, okay? Um, I mean, let's face it, Nia, okay, you and I have had bosses where once we know how they do things, okay, um, do we figure out how to go ahead and take advantage of how they do things, okay, for our own benefit so that we can do our jobs the way we want to do? Most of us do that. Right. Right? Okay. Most of us do that. Although if my boss is listening now, I never do that now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Jason Arnold as Department Chair of Political Science, if you're listening to this episode, I follow all of your mandates and recommendations to the letter. Exactly. (laughs) Um, On that CYA moment, um, the, I I think though that what really could be summed up to me, at least about the Tower Commission and about the Iran-Contra affair in general, is that it's complicated. All of it is enormously complicated. Everybody in it had reasons for doing what they were doing. And whether they are good or bad, it's not as nuanced as, I mean, it's not as uh, simple as 
as you know this is either on or off there's there's an enormous yeah in, in, in between and i tell my students when i uh discuss iran contra um particularly in constitutional law um uh guys one of the values of checks and balances is making sure that no one branch of government can act unilaterally. And this is one of those situations where we had decades, if not a couple centuries of practice where the Congress and the courts had basically said, the office of president conducts US foreign policy. And it's not a big shock that occasionally you'll have presidential administrations that go too far. Right. And that's the danger of not having, okay, robust, actually functioning checks and balances. Because I got to be, I got to admit, okay, I watched, okay, um, uh, in preparation for this podcast episode, some of the congressional hearings. Okay, and I had to start laughing when I heard members of Congress act shocked that a presidential administration thought that they could go ahead and largely conduct U.S. foreign policy unilaterally. I was just like, you know, you guys are a bunch of two-faced, hypocritical, no, no good, blah, blah, blahs, because historically, your institution has basically said to the office of president, there is a crisis or hotspot in this part of the world. You go solve it. Right. Go fix it. Okay. Here's a whole bunch of money. You guys go fight communism. Right. Okay. Right. And now afterwards, you know, again. You're going to clutch your pearls and act like, the, how is this even possible? Well, yeah, right. Okay. It kind of sort of reminds me of... Uh, uh, the, the character played by Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men, okay, uh, 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 when he goes ahead and, you know, says, you know, how dare you question, okay, the blanket of freedom that I provide you, right. okay? You basically want me to go ahead and provide it, but now you're questioning how I provide it, okay? Right. Um, so I can understand why, and this is just an example of one presidential administration, okay? I can give examples from presidential administrations ad nauseum to where their basic attitude was, you know, we are the, to quote the U.S. Supreme Court in Curtis Wright uh, Corporation from 1935, excuse me, 1936, okay? The president is the sole organ of U.S. foreign policy. Well, if you got the highest court in the land basically telling you as the office of president, you are, okay, the, you know, perpetrator, creator, you are the man, if you will, in regards to U.S. foreign policy, then of course you're going to be like, yeah, we can do whatever. And our commander in chief has said, we want the hostages home and we want to okay, fight communism. We want to fight communism, okay? Okay, so how we, do can, we, we can do this. We can kill a bunch of birds with a bunch of stones. We can. Yes. Okay. Um, and uh, although we are not for killing birds with stones, by the stones, way. Yes. Birds. Okay. That. Yeah. That's just a metaphor. That's a metaphor. Okay? <laughs> that's a metaphor. <laughs> but the downside is, 
okay, where is the checks and balances? Where's the accountability? Right. Okay. And in listeners, I hope you guys do take away from this particular discussion of the tire commission. Okay. The tire commission, the congressional hearings, and uh, the independent counsel report from uh, Lawrence Walsh all go ahead and highlight um, how you need to have accountability measures in place, even if it makes conducting foreign U.S. foreign policy more difficult. Yep. Yep. Thank you for that summary. Yeah. And, uh, and I'll see you for the next commission report. <laughs> Thanks, Nia. Enjoyed it. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.